Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. Well, I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to be with you uh, again today. Uh, Pastor Marcus invited me to um, join with you today, and when he issued the invitation, I was very grateful. Um, And then he told me that he was going to be talking about Mark's gospel and wanted me to talk about Mark's gospel and give sort of an overview of uh, some of the dynamics that are happening in Mark. And uh, when he mentioned that uh, he would like me to talk about Mark, I was slightly less happy. Um, I've come to love Mark's gospel, is currently my favorite. Uh, I don't know about the rules of being Christian, if you're supposed to have a favorite gospel or not, Uh, but that's, um, there are many supposed inherited rules that I've come to break, and so I'm comfortable breaking that one. Um, Mark's gospel is very challenging. It's a very challenging gospel. Uh, The four gospels that we have in our Bibles all speak to us with uh, different voices. They give us unique pictures of Jesus and the kingdom of God uh, so that we have um, a wonderfully rich conception of the wonderful reality that God wants to bring us into, that God has invited us into. And um, the voice of Mark is just a confrontational voice. It's an unsettling voice. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are two voices that we get at least. Uh, we have the psalmists um, compiling praise and lament, poetry. Um, and we have the priest and we have the prophet in Old Testament Israel. And think with me about what the priest does in Old Testament Israel. The priest walks into the royal court and he blesses the king. God bless the king. And the priest blesses the people. God bless the people. The priestly voice in the Old Testament is how God says to his people, I love you. I love you. You're my people. I want to bless you. I want to see you flourish. The prophet Um, in the Old Testament, is not interested in anybody being blessed or happy at all. The prophet walks into the royal court and says, the king is corrupt. He's a scoundrel. The people are idolatrous. They've gone astray from God. And God is coming to punish because he wants his people back. And God is a jealous God. So repent. Repent. Priests are very popular in the Old Testament. Prophets are not popular in the Old Testament. 
The Gospel of John, in some ways, represents that priestly voice. We want comfort. We want encouragement. We want assurance. And John gives us that in spades. Just pours it on us. We love the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a favorite gospel for many people. I have not yet met anybody for whom the Gospel of Mark is a favorite gospel. Um, Mark wants to confuse us, and we want clarity. We want to be settled, and Mark wants to unsettle us. We want to be reassured of God's love for us, and Mark wants us to ask ourselves, are we even the people of God at all? And so when Marcus asked me uh, to talk about Mark, I just was a little bit unsettled myself because I like to make people happy, and that is not what Mark is about whatsoever. But I'm happy to share my unsettled state. As Dave mentioned, I um, spent the better portion of the last 10 years studying the Gospel of Mark very closely and have come face to face with Mark's very, very difficult and challenging words. Um, And they have unsettled me profoundly. And I see that that is a state that uh, God wants me to be in um, because while God wants to tell me and tell us that he loves me and he loves us, um, God does not want us to be in a place of complacency. And so he longs to unsettle us and ask ourselves some very difficult questions. So as a way of getting into Mark and showing you some of this and sharing my discomfort, I want to um, talk about one of the main passages in the Gospel of Mark, and that is chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, which I will read now. And this is the parable of uh, the soils, or the sower, or the seed. It's called different things, so I just called it all of them. And I'll read it for us here. It consists of a sort of a parable, then a brief interlude, and then Jesus explains the parable. So I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll talk through it a bit. As he was scattering the seed, oh, sorry, that's the next slide. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Next slide, please. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. 
to clarify teaching, right? This is one of the, Mark knows that we know Matthew. And he's like, I'm not playing Matthew's game. Why does Jesus teach in parables? What's the Sunday school answer? Examples, so that you, this is what a good teacher does, right? Mm-mm. You don't keep, nope. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Also, riddles, mystifying statements, confusing statements. Because the one thing we can't have is people getting saved. This is what Mark says. To those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. I grew up, like some of you, singing Be a Missionary every day. Jesus is saying, we cannot afford to have missionaries on any day. No missionaries, right? All right, let's keep going. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? Jesus is often indignant in Mark. It's very uncomfortable. How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So, the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. A couple things about this passage. I've heard this passage preached on a number of times throughout my life, and I'm sure that many of you have as well, and you're familiar with it. Um, one of the things that I've often heard is um, uh, don't be like these three soils. Be like the fourth soil. It's preached to us as uh, exhortation. The odd thing that I discovered about this passage is that there are no exhortations in it whatsoever. This is not meant to be a text like that. The way that it functions in the Gospel of Mark is it's a preview of what's going to happen in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. You're going to see a series of people respond to Jesus in different ways in the rest of the Gospel. Jesus talks about the gospel of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom. And the secret of the kingdom is that it's not like everyone thinks. Everyone in Galilee and Judea and all of Israel are waiting for salvation to come, much like we are training ourselves to wait at this time as we look forward to celebrating the arrival of the Son of God. Everyone is waiting waiting for a savior to come to give them political deliverance. They are under the thumb of Rome. 
That means that God's land is being polluted with defiling Romans. Salvation means relief and rescue from their Roman overlords. And they're looking for relief. They're looking for salvation. It's just that Jesus is not going to be the kind of king that they are expecting. Jesus is going to come as a cross-oriented king. He's not going to come to put others on crosses. He's going to come and get on a cross. That's the secret of the kingdom. And that requires that people pay very, very close attention to what Jesus is saying and to what Jesus is about. If you um, recall, at the very beginning of Jesus' parable, he said, listen. The NIV um, took out one of the other verbs. There are two verbs. Listen. Look. In the NASB uh, that's kept in. Listen. Behold, a farmer. I don't think Jesus is sort of saying, listen, I'm going to now tell you a story. I think he means, listen, look, awaken all your senses. This is not how you think it is. And he's talking to people who know their Bibles better than we do. And then he closes the parable by saying, if you have ears, listen up. So we have to pay very, very close attention. Uh, one further thing about the, um, the parable, and that's that mystifying part there in verses 10 to 12, where Jesus says, there's a reason I'm talking to you in sort of mystifying sayings. Because to you, you people, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom. You are the insiders. You are the insiders. But I'm talking this way so that those people, the outsiders, will not get it. They won't get it. And I'm talking this way so that they will sort of hear something, but they won't get it. Otherwise, they would repent and be forgiven. Now that is really unsettling. Does Jesus want outsiders to repent and be forgiven? Certainly raises that question. Well, there's a very, very interesting thing that happens in Mark 4 to 8. And I'll talk a little bit about this, but I'll leave you to search it out on your own. There's something very interesting that happens in Mark 4 to 8. Jesus once again picks up that statement. Otherwise, they might see and not perceive, or otherwise, or sorry, so that they might see and not perceive, so that they might hear and not understand. He repeats that in chapter 8. He repeats it in chapter 8. And a very interesting dynamic unfolds between Mark 4 and 8. In Mark 4 to 8, there's a group of people who show that they are outsiders by failing to understand almost everything that Jesus says. And it's a surprising group. It's the disciples. And there are groups of people 
that routinely get what Jesus is saying. And they are all the most unexpected characters. They are, <clears throat> they're the wrong gender, they're unclean, they're Gentiles. Uh, one guy that lives in a cemetery, like radioactively unclean. In chapter 5, it's so interesting, he sees Jesus and runs to him and falls down. When you read Mark's gospel, pay very, very close attention to everybody who sees and hears. It's all the most unexpected characters, while the disciples are often completely obtuse. And Jesus in Mark 8 asks the disciples, is it you that are failing to see? Is it you that are hearing but not understanding? And that's right after he tells them the mildest mildest parable. They get into a boat and he says, look guys, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. Which is just a way of saying don't be like those people who mistreat others. And the disciples ask one another, is Jesus trying to tell us that we forgot to bring bread? That's a great contrast. That's a great contrast with the, one of the, the two heroes of the Gospel of Mark, and that's the Syrian Phoenician woman to whom Jesus says the most challenging thing in Mark, and she gets it right away. And then the woman in chapter 14 who gives everything she had to Jesus. I'm saying this just to say this. The disciples are the ones who are targeted in Mark. And there's a reason for that. Mark does not have um, some kind of grudge that he holds against the disciples. I don't think. I don't know him. Um, but Mark is trying to talk to us, Christian people, people who claim to be followers of Jesus and who imagine that they're the ones who get it. And Mark is trying to tell us, you don't get it like you think you get it. You don't get it like you think you do. You need to listen up. You need to pay close attention to what this whole thing is about. So I'm trying to put this all on Mark, the fact that Mark is the one who wants to make us very uncomfortable. So I'm, I will try to represent that for us, to, to ask questions about our lives to see where Mark would want to sort of skewer us and make us feel uncomfortable. Let's talk a little bit about the first soil. The first soil in verse 15. Can we go to that slide in verse 15? We're probably already there. I'm sorry. Skip ahead a little bit. This is, the, this is the slide I was talking about, that passage where they get into the boat. Here we go, the first soil. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. That cross-shaped word goes out where Jesus invites us to take up our crosses as a mode of life. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes away, comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Now I have to say, 
this, this always kind of baffled me. This always kind of baffled me. I always thought, boy, it's really discouraging. Not only do I have to sort of work up the energy to ever sort of share the gospel with somebody, but might it happen that I share the gospel with someone and then like Satan just makes them forget we ever had a conversation? Is that what it looks like when Satan takes away the word? When Satan snatches away the word? What does it look like when Satan snatches away the word? What does that look like? Uh, we know what that looks like in Mark, and it looks like Peter. You go to that text uh, in Mark 8. You know this conversation well. Jesus asks the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Again, no evangelism. Just, what do you, what do you, Jesus, come on. Really mystifying. But Peter answers well. You're the Messiah. You are the one that we're pinning all of our hopes on. You are going to bring us relief. You're going to bring salvation to our people. You are going to be the one who gets rid of the Romans. You are going to be the one who brings God's kingdom reign among us and brings his order of flourishing to us. We are so tired of being beaten down. We are so tired. We want our nation to represent God's glory once again. And we're going with you, Jesus, to the nation's capital to reinstall God's reign. You are the Messiah, Jesus. You are our salvation. Our hopes are going to be fulfilled. And as we make our way down to Jerusalem, to the nation's capital, more people and more people and more people are going to join us, and we are going to go to the nation's capital and drive out God's enemies. Jesus is going to tell his disciples a little bit more about his agenda. Jesus, in it, sorry, yeah, th yeah, let's stay there for a second. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, no parables. I'm going to die. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't hear you. Let me run this by you. You just said we're going to the nation's capital to die. You are going to the nation's capital to die, and we are going with you to the nation's capital to die with you? No, no. That's not how this works. That's not how this goes. We are going to the nation's capital to put others on crosses. We are not going to the nation's capital to get on crosses.
Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Um, when Mark repeats an action or says it two ways, he's so clipped with how he says things, you got to know, this is like, if this were a film, he, this would be a slow turn. You need to listen to me, y'all. And he rebuked Peter in front of all of them. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's a real shocker, but when Satan snatches away the word, people usually want to sign up to it really fast because it offers all of us all our hopes and dreams. But the, the cross-shaped gospel is the kind of gospel that is not nearly so popular. It's a very interesting thing in Mark. The crowd in Mark functions as a singular character, and it's almost always negative. When there's a crowd, they usually, the crowd usually gets in the way of what Jesus wants to do. And when there's a crowd, um, that's a sign that the word isn't being heard. Because when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, he dies alone because things finally get clarified. Peter wants to take back the nation for God. Peter wants relief and liberation from enemies. And Jesus says, those desires, Peter, are satanic. Because that's not how this thing goes. How many of us have misplaced desires for who we want Jesus to be? For, for what we want being Christian to be like? How many of you watched the unfolding events last January 6th and thought, that's going too far? But I get it. I get it. I'm tired of being kicked around. I'm tired of being pushed around, disrespected. I wouldn't go that far, but I get what they're all about. How many of you looked at the events of last January 6th through the lens of Mark chapter 8 and saw the Christian imagery? and Christian symbolism and thought, yep, a satanic view of Christianity. Satan snatches away the word. We get a Christianity saturated with power, quests for control, a quest to determine the course of our nation's history. Mark would want us to see that that's not merely an option that is fatal to genuine discipleship. Makes me wonder, what are the sources of how we see being Christian? Who's, who are the ones informing us of how we see our Christian discipleship. 
Let's take a look at the second soil in verses 16 and 17. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Who is it that fell away in Mark's gospel? What does that look like? What does that look like? What does it look like to fall away? Well, Jesus tells us in chapter 14 at the Last Supper, he looks at his disciples and he tells them, you will all fall away. Put yourself at that table. And Jesus looks around and looks at all of us and says, you will all fall away. How would you respond? <laughs> like Peter. Not me. Not me, Lord. I will die with you. It's not how it's going to go, Peter. Actually, by the end of tonight, you will have denied me three times. Oh, this stab in the heart. But throughout chapters 14 and 15, this is exactly what happens. They all fall away because, because of that drive for self-preservation. It's, it's natural to all of us. We, we want to preserve ourselves, our lives, our bodies. We want our bodies to stay alive. And when they're under threat, we take off like every one of the disciples did when Jesus was about to be arrested. Actually, um, one of the disciples, he's unnamed in Mark, other gospels say that it was Peter. Uh, one of the disciples lashes out with his knife and cuts off one of the servant's ears. Wasn't aiming for the ear. Um, Peter wants to defend Jesus from being arrested. Wants to defend Jesus. But that is not at all what Jesus is about. Jesus has come to the nation's capital to give his life. And so violence against others is ruled out by Jesus. Jesus did not come to the nation's capital to inflict violence. He came to the nation's capital to receive it. He is going to become the object of violence. He's going to become the object of the violence of the state. And he is not going to fight back. Because his kingdom is just so utterly different. This is why it requires us to pay close attention. His kingdom is just so different. And he is just such a different kind of a king. He is not going to inflict violence. He's going to be treated violently. And he tells his disciples in Gethsemane, stay awake, stay alert, and pray with me so that you won't fall asleep and so that you will have courage when the dramatic and climactic moment arrives. Jesus does not want to be defended. He wants his disciples to stay with him, even, at me, even if that means that they will be killed along with him. Jesus wants them to stay with him. Jesus wants them to have solidarity with him, to stay with him, even if that means that they will be arrested and they may be killed. It's the cross 
that Jesus calls his disciples to get up on goes right after that core desire to preserve ourselves that we ha- we all that, that's natural to all of us. And Jesus wants them to stay with him and perhaps put their own bodies at risk. Having solidarity with Jesus even as he becomes the object of the violence of the state, of the nation. What might this look like in our day? What might this look like in our culture? As we look around at our world, who in our culture are being objects of the violence of the state? Just read a book a couple weeks ago in two days. I couldn't put it down. It's a memoir written by a black evangelical Christian. Um, I would urge you to read it. It's beautifully written. It's heartbreaking. Um, By Dante Stewart. It's called Shouting in the Fire. Dante Stewart was part of an evangelical ministry in college, and he and his wife went to an evangelical church, uh, where part of evangelical church is, after they were married. And over the last seven or eight years or so, um, he said the experience was so unsettling where he would, like many of us, look at his smartphone and watch black male bodies be filled up with bullets and expire. And he watched those videos as a black male body. Traumatized. And would walk into his evangelical church that was white space for him. And no one said a word. It was not on their radar. And Dante Stewart, our brother in Christ, wonders, how could that be? How could we just fail to notice what's happening? I don't think it's productive at all for us to be shamed or humiliated or guilty. what, What I want to do is generate the kinds of questions that get us to focus on who is shaping the way we see the world so that we see the world in such a way that we see things like that happening and we just change the channel, open up another app, fail to notice. What are the conditions of our culture, Christian culture, that make us not notice people made in God's image who are our siblings in Christ, some of them, and being mistreated and we don't notice? What is it that is shaping our imaginations? Let's take a look at the third soil in verses 18 and 19. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. 
I have to say, before I studied this, I always had this image in my mind of what's happening with this soil. It's somebody who hears the word and becomes Christian. But then there are these distractions over here. And so somebody's distracted and leaves the faith and departs. Does that make sense? That's not what's happening here. Again, this is really unsettling. What Jesus is referring to here is a community that is Christian. Uh, it might be a person, but it, let's imagine a community. A community of disciples. And the worries of this age, the agitations of our age, the anxieties of this age, the fears of this age, and the deceitfulness of wealth, the lies that money tells us, and the desires for other things. These don't distract from the gospel. They enter in. They come in here. And they make the word fail to produce a cross-shaped community. The word wants to produce a community that looks like the cross, that looks like a community that has given up the desire to preserve itself, that has given up quest for safety and security and reassurances about how things are going to turn out. And the worries of this age and the lies that money tells us and the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make the word unable to produce a cross-shaped people. The worries of this age. Who is it that is shaping our imaginations so that we see fears out in our culture? How are our imaginations shaped? And what are the fears that are being produced? Who are we afraid of? What are we anxious about? What are the lies that money tells us? Mark is not trying to get at how money distracts us from discipleship. I think Mark wants us to consider, how do you think money could enhance everything that you do? Money's a threat, isn't it? but not when we use it for the Lord. Really? There are lies that money can tell us. We're strong. Budget's looking good. We're doing well. And the desires for other things. It's so easy for a church to get distracted from the main thing. It's so easy for a church to have other things on the agenda that pull us away from becoming the cross-shaped community that God is calling us to be. Again, this is the disciples. Let me give you a few examples of this. In chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, uh, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Desires for prominence and for prestige. We can get ourselves caught up in wanting to be upfront or prominent in this community. 
we can get caught up in wanting this community to be prominent or have prestige in Grand Rapids. This is not the only time this happened. In chapter 10, one chapter later, it happens again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So great. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let, us, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. We want to be number one and number two when, when we all together arrive in the kingdom. We can get caught up in competition. Go to the next slide, please. This happens uh, with, with the disciples. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Wasn't Baptists. Wasn't part of Berean. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever's not against us is for us. And whenever they bless you, they will not lose their reward. The disciples got caught up in ministry competition. It's easy to compare ourselves with that church across town. It's easy for us to compare ourselves with one another. It's easy for us to compare ourselves with the celebrity pastors we watch on YouTube. I'm, I'm one of this guy. You know, what do you, who, who's the guy you follow? We measure ourselves up against each other. The desire to control access to Jesus in chapter 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Get them out of here. Children, people with no social value, no social capital, they don't matter in culture, in the ancient world. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. I wonder what you would say are the worries of this age. How would you identify those? And how would you identify what could easily creep in here and distract Berean from what God wants from us? In fact, I wonder how you would fill in the statement. The biggest threat to Bereans' faithful collective discipleship is the biggest threat to our faithfulness to Jesus is and how would you fill that in? And I wonder if when you thought that, did your mind go outside? Do we look outside and see threats out there? Because for the New Testament authors, the threats are in here. And they're in our hearts. And we don't pay attention to how other people tell us what our threats are. The desires for other things, the desires for some other agenda, 
can come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. Well, let's look at the fourth soil in verse 20. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. These are the people who hear about the upside-down kingdom that completely reverses social values, that makes the first last and the last first. And they hear it, and they see life and hope. And so they commit themselves to it, and they bear rich fruit. Like I said, who is this in Mark's gospel? It's all the people that you don't expect. The Syrian Phoenician woman, the demon-possessed daughter, Jairus, the synagogue leader, uh, the woman who had the 12-year bleeding issue, um, the demon-possessed man, Mark 5. It's all of these people that ancient, audience would, ancient audiences would say, they are the most obvious outsiders. They're so far. They're the ones who are going to not get Jesus. And each one of them, as Mark narrates their story, they see or they hear and they come to Jesus because they get what he's all about. And of course, like I said, the ultimate example is the woman in chapter 14. Did I put that text up here? I think I'm running slightly short of time, so I'll let you read that on your own. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. The woman who breaks into a dinner party that she's not invited to and breaks uh, the jar of the very expensive perfume that she had. She committed herself to Jesus and gave to him what she could never get back. Self-expenditure. In Mark, the disciples began well. Everything that is great about what's happening in Mark with regard to the disciples happens at the beginning. And if you've read Mark to the end, you know that Mark ends in failure. The young man at the, at the tomb tells the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to meet with them in Galilee. And they don't because they're afraid. The end. I mean, Mark is not, is not he's like, as, as uncomfortable as I can make you, that's what I want to do. The disciples begin well and they end with failure. And like I said, I think that's because Mark wants us to ask ourselves, how much are we like the disciples and how much have we failed to get what Jesus is all about? We know he's the Messiah, we know he's the Christ, but we want to make him the Christ, the Messiah that we want him to be. They wanted a military hero, champion fighter. And again, they knew their Bible so much better than we did, than we do. Jesus says to John and James, what do you want me to do for you? And they answer poorly. Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus the same question later in that, at the end of that chapter. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. That's what Mark wants us to be praying. 
That's what Mark wants us to be desiring. There are two healings of blind men in Mark. In one, right before Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and then is called Satan, Jesus heals a man, but only partially. And then he heals him fully. Because Peter only sees partially and needs to fully see. And Peter needs to be praying to Jesus like Bartimaeus is, Rabbi, I want to see. And that's what I would leave us with. Do we see what Jesus is all about? Do we hear what he's all about? Or are there ways that our hearts and minds need to be reconfigured so that we genuinely understand and know what Jesus' agenda is and we together are about producing that in our community. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.